O Lord, you have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts your greatest gift, which is love, the true bond of peace of all virtue, without which whoever lives is accounted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. On my uh, Facebook feed, I, I happened to check it as we the previous service went long from the other church that, well, that you, it's their church that we use their building, and so they can go long if they want. But as they did, I was scanning through my Facebook feed, and they, uh, one of my Facebook friends said, uh, it was like 17 years ago, I think was the number, that today that they, he had gone to a doctor, and two words changed his life. And those two words were, it's cancer. And for my illustration to get us thinking and starting, I wanted to talk about what if you went to a doctor and you, you got that terrible news. And you hear of these things, and perhaps you've experienced it yourself or, or in your families, where somebody goes to the doctor and they get that terrible news. And, um, and, and it's, you know, today when they say it's cancer, there's likely all kinds of other treatments. There are those, and, and this is just an imaginary thing, so uh, it doesn't have to make sense, and don't try to put all the qualifiers on it. I just want you to flow with me that if you went to a doctor and he gave you this terrible news and said you only have months to live, now, I don't know what this is that you have. Let's just say we've got that much information. We only have months to live. Would it change your priorities? Would it change what you're investing your time in, what you're investing your money in? Would it, would it change the way you spend what time you have left? My guess is it would. And, of course, with that, you have all kinds of qualifiers. Well, geez, if it's some crippling disease and I couldn't go anywhere, maybe it changes it for in a whole different way. But perhaps it's like, you know, uh, a bucket list kind of thing where there are things that you want to do. So you're busy, like, preparing for your exit. You're busy living life to the fullest. And, um, and that's how you intend to spend your time. You're going to get the most out of life that you can, what little time you have left. And in the midst of that pursuit, along comes good news. That good news is there is a cure for your disease. That, that you, they didn't think however many months ago there was a cure for. Now we understand there's a cure. And it fits your disease specifically. And it's not a perhaps it might cure. It's a cure. Boom. Would that change how you look at the rest of life? I think it would. Imagine with me just a little more. You run, as you're, as you're going along life and you run into men, women, and children who have the same diagnosis that you had, would you not stop what you're doing and tell them about the cure you found? I think you would. It would be very natural for us to want to tell others of this good news that we received. I think this makes all kinds of sense. There's a recent poll by Barna. The, this George Barna does, has Barna Research Group, and they uh, come up with interesting questions to... Um, ask either the world or the church about Christianity, and then they compile all this, these statistics and spit them out so that we can kind of have a gauge for what's going on in the world or in, in the church even. A recent thing, he, he, just, he broke this down over four age groups. So we have the millennials, the Gen X, and uh, boomers and elders. And uh, I didn't bring my I, I didn't. I didn't make note enough to know what those dates are. But so scouts and millennials, Wilsons are in the Gen X. I'm at the bottom of the Boomers. Aren't you in Gen X? 
I, I should have brought, I should, I should have my dates. So you're close to Gen X, if not in Gen X. And then like I'm at the bottom of the boomers. Um, so to give you, to give you an age range and who's doing what and the, and the, those go for a good bit of, uh, spread. So the rest of you are in the boomers. We have the, uh, the, those that are in the elders group, they left from the first service. We have none in this room right now. So those are, those are the age groups. They asked them these questions, and, and I, I'm going to say they all agreed, which means no, no, nobody gets 100, no age group gets 100% on any of these questions. So um, when they're in agreement, they're all, the numbers, the percentages that came back would be high and, uh, and pretty close among the four age groups. It's quite, one of the questions was uh, that um, it, was, it was framed as, my Christian faith in Jesus means that I need to share and be a witness for Jesus. So all across the board, all those age groups, everybody agrees. Um, they were all fairly even when asked if they knew how to respond to questions about their faith, which I thought was interesting, and it was rather high. Um, then the group that assessed themselves most gifted to share their faith with others would be the millennials. 73% of the millennials responded, and this was a, a, a group of, of people, Christians, uh, that was, it was about 1,000 people, it was 900 and some, I think is what I read. But about 73% of the millennials said that they were gifted to share their faith with others, whereas in the boomers, it would only be 59%. I thought that was interesting. But then asked if it was wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they would one day share that same faith. of millennials said it was wrong, whereas only 19% of boomers. Now, you know, somebody somebody in the crowd always thinks these things are wrong. And, of course, if the exclusivity of Christ, if Jesus is not the only way, as long as somebody's sincere, if that's the way you're taught, these these answers would make sense. But there's a pretty drastic jump between the 19 and now 47% of young people would say it's wrong to tell somebody else of another faith about Jesus and expect them to follow Jesus. I find this interesting. How could it change? What's going on? Well, our world has changed. Our world has changed a lot. And the biblical Christian worldview that where Judeo-Christian values used to be kind of intertwined into our uh, culture, those things have dispersed. They've gone away. And this answer to this next question, I thought, uh, helps us understand the the previous answer or the, or the, the stats from the previous answer. And this was, it, if, uh, if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. 40% of millennials agreed to that, whereas only 9% of boomers. So what that says is, we can have any conversation you want of any age group with people like me, and we, can, we don't have to agree, but I don't hate you, and I don't think you hate me, or I'm not judging you, and you're not judging me. We can discuss these things have differences of opinions, and we still live life together. But what it's saying is that younger generation, they think that if you've disagreed with them, you're judging them. So, um, the, <laughs> I was going to say, now, now, that, now that makes Phil, Scout feel bad, but um, <laughs> there are lots more people in that age group than Scout, but, um, it, but it's an interesting thing. And, and can you imagine, so it, it, we, can, we can fight with insecurities, we're not um, whatever. We're we're that fear of man thing. 
I'm not capable, I'm not, I'm not uh, prepared enough. We have all these issues about the concept of sharing our faith anyway. But if you're in this age group that thinks that people are going to judge you if we disagree, it might make for people less willing to share their faith. This lesson today, and what, and, the, and what we're going to land on with multiple lessons within the passage that we read, it being so lengthy, we're going to focus on the fact that all Christians are to share the good news of the kingdom with persistent prayer, trusting him for protection and provision, and then celebrating that our names are in heaven. So whether these are the best divisions, these are our divisions for our topic. So we're going to look at persistent prayer. And, and, it, and, it's, and, and it's this mandate, and this is consistent. You know, when we, the, the Great Commission is that the, the disciples, those who were following Jesus, were to go into the world and share this good news. It wasn't the twelve, it, were those, it was those who were following Jesus. And so this is consistent in this, that he's calling these people to go and share this news. So it's, it's a building up for the Great Commission, and it'll be building to something else that we'll hit in just a second. Let's look at persistent prayer, and let's look at verse 1. So verse 1, we're in chapter 10 of Luke, verse 1 says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So remember, we're in the, the setting is, Jesus has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and um, it's the end of his Galilean ministry, and he is on the road. He's, he's, you know, like Willie Nelson. He's on the road again, and he's headed to Jerusalem. Well, there are many places that he intends to uh, visit before Jerusalem. So he's sending these 72 into those places. Now, for who we are, uh, where we are, who we want to be, I think this may be the point of the main point of application from this passage uh, for us, and that's this persistent prayer. So the Lord appoints this seventy-two or seventy, depending upon the trans, the either the translation, which depends on the manuscripts. Some say seventy, some say seventy-two. Some people find seventy more consistent uh, with some other seventies that are in Scripture. Um, and the, the 12, some people think the 12 may have been included, but he, but he says that, uh, that the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on. So the thought here is that it, the, really it's, the, it's 72 fresh d- disciples to be sent, not just the, not the 12, but 72 others. And just a few weeks ago, and if you missed that, I'm sorry, but in, there was a, you're, you may be like, I think I've seen this movie before. Because a few weeks ago, we covered a passage where the 12 were sent in a very similar way. They were to, they were to pack lightly, they, or not pack, they were to travel lightly, they were to trust in the Lord for protection and provision, and they were to go and share the kingdom, and they were going to be equipped with mighty powers in order to authenticate their message, and their message was about the kingdom of God has come. Now we fast forward a chapter or two, and here we are again with the same thing, except it's 72 and not 12. Very similar, um, very similar story. But what, what, what's the significance of the 70? Is there a significance of the 70? And I think that we could just ask that question and perhaps even leave it unanswered. There are different su- suggestions as to what the uh, 70 or 72, what it might represent. But um, some people think it might be the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, 
um, 70 members of the, the elders with Moses. And what might make more sense, and it seems like it's looking toward, um, is in Genesis 10, there's a description of the 70 nations of the world. And so, if you have 70 going into these far reaches, um, that may correspond, and I like that one the best, of those options. That doesn't mean it's that. But those are some, those are some possibilities. But it, I think it's important for us to understand these 72, as they're being sent out, they were pioneers. They're taking the, this good news, they're taking the gospel to unreached areas, to the, to the greater world. So the things are opening up. Um, you know, Paul talks about first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So these are these, the, well, those, those nations in chapter 10 of Genesis would have been Gentile nations. So this concept, if that's what it's cor- corresponding to, plus the places they did go, they're taking this good news to the Gentiles in the area. And it's that spreading that uh, that I think is really key here. And the Lord is preparing a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's what Revelation says. And this is the precursor that builds toward that. So this is, this is already, I've said, a precursor to the Great Commission. But this, this and the Great Commission becomes the precursor to the fulfillment in Revelation when he says that he's going to draw a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So he will fulfill his mission. And I think it's really important for us to recognize what we have as a missionary God. So and when we hear texts like this, we can feel a bit of angst because there's a lot of pressure being put on us as we are supposed to go and share the gospel. Now, I don't want to remove that from you whole, uh, in, in whole, I want you to feel some angst. I want you to feel joy and want you to share the gospel. Yes, I do. But the reality is what we're doing when we do this is we are participating in God's greater plan because we have a missionary God, a God who is calling a people to himself. And from the beginning to the end of Scripture, there's this recurring refrain that I will be your God and you shall be my people. And that's not only to the Jews of the Old Testament. It runs throughout. And so for us, the people in the church age, we are a part of this fulfillment of the um, Revelation passage when he draws a people to himself. So he will be your God and you will be his people. So let's look at verse 2. That's not much of a transition, but um, I didn't think that through. Verse 2 says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, into his harvest. The need, the need is so great. Uh, and he sees, he sees that the fields are white. That means they're ripe. They're ready to harvest. He sees that they're just full and ready. And, and, and if, if you're into harvesting your crops at any time, I don't care if you have a little tomato patch, there's still a window. You only have a window for, for harvesting. And if it's you and your two or three tomato patches, that probably doesn't seem too overwhelming. But if as far as you could see, we're going to, let's, let's, let's talk about whatever, say wheat, and as it ripens, as it gets near, it's more white as the sun shines on it, and as far as you can see, and you got you standing there, or maybe it's you in a whopping 12, and, it's, and you have a narrow window in which to go and harvest this whole crop. It seems a little overwhelming, a little daunting. Well, that's when we gather from time to time, and we, depending on what we're talking about, sometimes our focus is different. 
Uh, we don't just focus on this, but when we focus on this, and that's what we're called to do today, I think it becomes overwhelming when we look out and see how white the fields are and ready for harvest. We were in a conversation just the other day, and the more we know of like um, the, the family, social, emotional, and spiritual problems that exist, and then they manifest themselves in a myriad of ways, the need is impressed upon us of this, um, that, that it is so great. We, we feel compelled to share the good news, and we feel very inadequate that whatever project we're working on, we're not enough, because the need is so great. Everyone we run into, and, here, and this is the thing from a biblical Christian worldview, this, this is the truth that we can't escape. Everyone we run into, every man, woman, and child, has, been di- has, has the same disease that, that we talked about earlier that's leading us straight to death. We, who have been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, and who have come to faith, we have the cure. Now, everybody, I said, has that same disease even if they haven't been diagnosed yet. And so part of our spreading the gospel is helping diagnose. So that, you know, and, and, I, and I tell you guys this all the time, and um, if it didn't bother me so much, I'd just tell you something different. But in cultural Christianity, we think if we're going to share the gospel, who in our area needs the gospel? Well, let's go down under the bridge and share the gospel with those people. But the people in my neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in the middle-class neighborhoods we live in, they're doing pretty good. they got good cars. They seem to survive well. They don't. That's not the need. That's not their greatest need. And that's ridiculous. That is ridi- that's not what the Bible says. The Bible didn't say, if you put on clean clothes and you comb your hair right, that you don't need Jesus. That's, that's just that's not what the Bible says. And, and the Bible does not say that... Um, you who lack, if you would just simply pull yourself up by the bootstraps and believe in yourself, that you could overcome whatever obstacle you have. Now, what the Bible says is that we all are—we all have the same disease, though it may not be diagnosed, and that disease is leading us straight to death, and it's an eternal death. So, we as believers who have been regenerated have an obligation. We have this cure. We know it. We know him, and we know we are not who we used to be. So we are called to be the herald of the message of peace and shalom, of flourishing that the kingdom brings. And we're to tell people, as these people were to tell people, as these 72 were to tell people, that the king has come, that the the kingdom has come, and the king is reigning. And in this kingdom, which you're invited into, you you will find that shalom, which is more than peace, as we would understand peace, it's, it's the full human flourishing. The John 10.10 passage where the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. That, ha- that, that, that happens in the kingdom. So, with those needs being so great, we must pray for people. We must pay, pray that we have a passion. We must pray for people to, that have a passion to reach the city for, with the gospel for the Lord. Because the Lord says that the harvest is plentiful. In Life Group, we talked about trusting the Lord um, for his power. 
And we do. We, we have to trust that God has the power for redemption. But that does not eliminate us from the equation. So we join him in his work. We don't feel, um, we don't, we don't have to feel the pressure. We don't have to have it weight us down because he has the power and the ability to save and he is mighty to save. The, and for this we say amen that we get to participate. But in that, he doesn't do it by himself and somehow he has chosen to tell others about himself through us. Now, I find this whole equation pretty weird because I know you, I know me. I'm thinking, Lord, if you were really wanting and understanding that he's the one that does all the work and he regenerates and all these things, you're like, why include us? Why include me? The best I could do, it seems to me, would be get in your way and kind of clog up the wheels. You ever been working in a team and you seem to be the weakest link and you're like, could I just get out of your way so you all could go ahead and progress? That's, I mean, when you're dealing with the mighty, almighty God, it seems like you've chosen me to participate. I don't believe this. So when I hear somebody who's really, really gifted and seems to be very uh, successful because they have lots of numbers, I think you should lean on them and I'll just sit by the wayside. That's not what he says. He says, no matter who you are, if you believe in me, I am going to use you to tell others. And, it, and the thing that helps us, the, the, our life verse, if you will, or our theme verse for Redeemer, and the piece that helped call us back to Parkersburg is, 10, is John 10, 27. And 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John 10 is a, a, a beautiful picture of the the shepherd calling the sheep out of the sheepfold to himself, and his sheep know his voice. And in this concept where he's calling those people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, when he calls his sheep, they know him. And so what I think is beautiful about that is, if he's doing that from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he's doing that here in Parkersburg as well. He's got people at every school in this county who are being called by him. And as feebly as we may, as, as young life goes into the, the school system and builds relationship and shares the gospel, he's using that. He's using our little church to share the gospel as you rub shoulders with family members, with friends, um, co-workers. He's using you to share the gospel and he will be heard by them. This is, this is what we take assurance in. We don't take assurance in our abilities. But we also then don't let our weaknesses overwhelm us. Because I could, you all know me well enough, you could see why I'm so weak. This will never work. But thanks be to God, it's not me. It's him. And he says, come and join in what I'm already doing. I am the missionary God. I'm calling a people to myself. And I have these little weak tools I use. And it's called the church. I find this to be just amazing. I find it to be overwhelming. But we, I think... This point is about prayer. It's this persistent prayer, a continual prayer. This, this mission that these people were sent on was a temporary mission. And, and therefore, some of the things that they were given doesn't really apply to everybody everywhere all the time who followed Jesus. We haven't been given those powers, as it says that they were given those powers, because that was for them, for that time, for that mission. But I think this concept for persistent prayer to pray for the harvest to pray for harvesters because the harvest is so great 
applies for us. I think that's the main point I want us to take away. I don't want you to zone out for the rest of the sermon, but this is the main thing I want us to take away because I want us to be persistent in prayer for additional workers for this church, for Redeemer. I want us to be persistent in prayer for potential for a transitional living house, which would, would, would be a different, applying, a, a different way of applying the gospel, but if we're going to be involved in a transitional living house, it won't be uh, without the gospel. There will be clear proclamation. There will be discipleship. And I want you to be in persistent prayer for the other thing that's going on, which is a young life. Because the, the need is so great, and the tool is so good. And it's up and running, but we could use more people. We could use more uh, volunteers. We could use more people with a vision. We could, I have found my limiting step when I'm talking to people, and I can get all excited about this concept of young life, but the idea to help us understand what this is, is hard in this area. It's hard for people to be so enamored with the gospel of what God has done in them. And, and, and again, if, if I'm really kind of proud of my decision, you know, my buddy right beside me has gone to hell in a handbasket, but he hasn't been smart as I have to bring himself together to reach out to, 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 for help to be saved. I'm the smart one, and he's not. Well, about the only thing that does for you is it makes you enamored with yourself, and it makes you judgmental of your dumb buddy. But when we understand the gospel correctly, and we have a missionary God who's calling a people to himself, and you're like, oh, I had nothing to do with this, now we become enamored with God. It's not my right decision. It's about this great and glorious God who, in his mercy, while I was far off, he reached down and snatched me out of that miry clay. So now we, now we live out of gratitude. So a right gospel will produce a right uh, messenger. It will produce a gr- gratitude in people, and they will not be able to keep, this, to keep their silence. Same with you. If you've been diagnosed and you thought for, there was no way you could ever be, be saved, having your life saved, you were headed for death, and all of a sudden this, this uh, cure comes your way, you couldn't keep your mouth shut about it. Well, if we understand that's the story of what God has done in you, if you are a believer in him, that's what he's done in you, we should be anxious to find other workers to go into these places. And, and when we're talking about young life, Kirk, Kirk and I were at my table, and I was trying to talk with one of my friends and trying to get him just to be on the same page with us. And that was that's the nature of my relationship with this friend anyway. But I said, it's as if the school at the end of the street is on fire and somebody needs to run and tell the kids to get out. I said, that's what Kirk's all about. I think it becomes an, a, a, a good illustration. But if we think that Jesus is just um, all right, the Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is all right with me, where's the urgency in that? Where's the urgency? Why, why run to the end of the street? If the school was really on fire, there'd be people that would understand. That's a physical thing, and you could see it. On the spiritual, we kind of lose, lose touch. So we need persistent prayer. Um, we'll shift into high gear, and we really will finish. After persistent prayer, we're to look for the Lord for his protection. Verse 3 says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What kind of mission is this? What kind of kind God do we have? This seems cruel to send the lambs out into the wolves. But the truth is that the gospel is offensive. We need to be clear, we're not to be offensive, but the gospel is offensive. Let the gospel be offensive, not you. 
I find that challenging sometimes because I can get so in, involved in my own fervor of, and, and my expression of truth that I could become offensive. We want the, we want the gospel to be offensive. But people find truth to be um, really bad. They kind of hate the truth, and they would rather cling to a lie. So that's that, and that is that's the biblical truth. But though people are in this great and desperate need, and we can see it, they, they need to believe or trust, have faith in Jesus and His atoning work, and that being an entrance into the kingdom. Our hearts might be breaking for them, but if they haven't come to that place of a need, if they haven't understood their need, then what are we inviting them into? The brokenness needs to be acknowledged. We have to be willing to step off the throne of our own heart. You know, so so if if you're if you're witnessing to somebody and they're resistant, here's the here's what's going on. They are king or queen of their own life, of their own heart, and what you're essentially asking them to do is step off of that and submit. You know, here it comes. I'd like to see one of those preachers say, could you turn to your neighbor and say, submit? Um, I th- the, no, no, nobody, that's not the one we pass around. People don't like the concept of submission. And that's the problem with the gospel. That's where it becomes offensive. If you're going to step off the throne of your own heart and you're going to submit to the lordship of Jesus, that's where things get tough. But this is what you're really asking somebody to do in order to enter into this peace and shalom of the kingdom. The world is full of danger, but we are to trust God and his protection to carry out his mission that he called us to. Now, what could that, what could that uh, look like? And if we're looking for his protection and we think it's going to remove us from all evils, we're mistaken. Missionaries, back in the day, used to pack their belongings before they put them on the ship. They'd pack them in a coffin. This would save time for preparation when they were when they were put to death by those who they went to minister to, well, what kind of protection is that? From our worldview, from what we understand, we can't we have a hard time wrapping our mind around that. But you know, Jesus says in Luke twelve, and so we'll get there. Luke says, uh, Jesus says in Luke twelve four says, "I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do." So when you have fear and trembling about sharing the gospel, remember the worst they could do is kill you. Chances are good that's not even going to happen here. And Jesus says if they kill you, there's no reason to fear them. And I think that would probably tie in with Paul to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for me to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, if that's really our attitude, then we can trust him for protection in the midst of the wolves. So persistent prayer, protection, and then provision. And so... Let's look at verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Which seems like that's going to make people rude. You've got to be in such a hurry. You're not even going to greet people. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So there's an urgent, and this this is kind of a flashback to the few weeks ago when we were talking about the 12. It was very similar kind of instructions. Um, they're to travel light. They're to be in a hurry. There's an urgency here. 
And that it, I do find that really weird. They're supposed to be in such a hurry that they don't even take time to talk. Uh, you just got to get on with it because we don't have time for lengthy conversations while we're traveling along the road because we've got to get to be about the Lord's business. They are to trust the Lord for what they need. The, the main point here in this, path, in this section is that they're to trust the Lord for what they need and they're not to worry. They, and, and I, so I find this um, to be a, a point that we need, that we need to hear just in our daily living, in, our, in the way we live our, live our lives. There may be some etiquette being trained. So as, as you, if you're going to be a good guest in a home, maybe these are good words of advice. And we try to practice this as we visit people or if we're, uh, when we go to Rwanda. Um, they remind, the way things work there, like if you didn't want to eat some of that, you don't have to. But it's basically stuff we eat for the most part. But uh, I am going to enjoy all the weird stuff you got. And, and I'll make a big deal out of it if it's very weird. And then you can laugh at me, and I think that's fun. So, so there may be something about the etiquette of being a good guest. But I think really what the main point of this pass, those few verses are is find your contentment in the Lord. Live simply, because this is all temporary. This, this, is, not, this is not your home. And I think as people being bombarded with uh, material, materialism and such these days, this main lesson from these passages is to... Let's live simply, let's rely on him, let's work to find contentment in what it is that he's given us, as opposed to finding the, uh, focusing on the lack that we have, that advertising helps create in us a desire for more and more and more. Um, I think also, in this, like in, this, in, in more of the spiritual realm, there's something I commend you all for doing. There's a, there could be, there is a temptation to go to the bigger church with more lights and more sound and what have you. Um, or the fact that it's bigger and there are people or there are people your age. Is God calling you to that, which may be desire, or is he calling you to fulfill your need, which you find here? And I think I know your answer. It's why you're still here. And I, and I thank God for you. But there could be several of you, and especially, well, if, say if you had some kids, there could be lots of places in this town that you could be um, more comfortable in a normal way. Now, we've been involved in church planting since our youngest was probably 10-ish, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10. And uh, she uh, did the welcome tables we did at church plant in a school. When visiting her church at Christmas time, and she's now a grown woman, now just married, She's doing a welcome, ta- she participates in the welcome table at that church plant that she's involved in. I think that's just pretty sweet. So th- these kids have been weird all their life, but they didn't know they were weird. What's well, weird? Well, weird's only what other people were doing, and then you compare yourself to that. Then you, okay, in that case, I've been weird all my life. So for our kids to be involved in church from the get-go, where there weren't other kids, um, for the most part, and there certainly weren't great big youth groups, and I would invite my friends to come participate with us, and they're like, but you have no youth group. You're like, well, I, we'll survive. Our, our kids, we treat them like people, so they help be chalice bearers. They play in the band. They read scripture, just like us old people do. They do everything we do. We, they're called people. No, they need, no, our kids need to be in a youth group. So these things, is it the desire of our heart, or is it our need? What has the Lord provided for us? And if the Lord has provided for us, a small, quirky congregation where people will love you and love your kids, maybe that's what the Lord has in store for you because maybe that's your greatest need, but maybe it's not what you see. So 
Um, or, and that fits, if you don't have kids, we all have that same thing going on. So uh, I find that interesting, and, but it may, that may be a help to you as you're talking with friends, and, um, and, invi- and you may be in the same situation I am, where you're inviting friends that have kids, and they're like, well, your church is weird because it doesn't do anything with kids. Well, you know, you, you use, use some of my lines. Kids are people. We'll let them read. I don't care how old they are. If they can read, we'll have them read scripture. We'll, we, we will include them as we include us. So finally, we get to celebration. I think this is exciting. We've skipped all kinds of passages that are, that are uh, there, there's, there are two ways to go. You're going to receive Christ and live in this kingdom with peace and shalom. Or you're going to reject him and suffer the same disease which you already had, whether you still believe the diagnosis or not, and that will be eternal. So this news of the message is a good news. So those are the kinds of things that we did skip. Verse 16 says, um, the, one, the one who hears me and the one who hears you hears me, and the one who hears the, the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So there's, there's this line of progression. We don't speak of our own authority. We're speaking for him. I think that is, this, is, this is a point that is still true. As we speak his words, he's speaking. So God speaks to his people through his people. They, and you can either be accepted or rejected. If you reject him, you're rejecting the one who sent him. You're rejecting God Almighty. Um, this message of the gospel is just simply, it's very serious business. This accepting or rejecting has eternal consequences. Some of this, uh, so some of this passage, it was about judgment of cities that didn't accept Jesus. And it seems worse for these cities where Jesus was than Old Testament cities that were destroyed. If you can say it would be better for, uh, it would have been better for Sodom than these people, Sodom was destroyed with sulfur. It was bad. There was judgment brought on it. And he's saying that because I, the Lord, showed up in your city and proclaimed this good news and you rejected me, then when judgment comes, it will be worse for you then than it would have been for Sodom. That's the dire consequences of the gospel. 17 says, here's the, here's, here we're getting into celebration. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So these 72 come back and they're stoked. They're pumped. They have had success. Their preaching was infused or energized by the power of God and uh, it accomplished what they intended it to do. And Jesus celebrates with them when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Their preaching was effective and Jesus see the results in the spiritual realm. There, there is much reason for celebration. As, as people invited them in, accepted this peace, as ex- and extended this peace to them, there is much to be excited about. The way has been prepared for Jesus as he goes. Verse 19 says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I think this is the beautiful picture of this story, that whatever success we have, whatever gifts you've been given, and perhaps you have been greatly gifted, 
whether that be in the normal or the spiritual work for the Lord. Perhaps you've been given great gifts. Yes, you could thank God for those gifts, but you don't rejoice, you don't relish in the fact that you have these gifts. What, what, if we're not careful, we're going to, and that's, I think, the point of this on this 72, they were so excited because of the power that they were wielding was working. He says, don't be um, rejoicing in these powers. Don't rejoice in the fact that the, the uh, spirits were subject to you. He says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the greater thing. Rejoice when God wins. Rejoice when people come to Christ. Rejoice when this Satan has been defeated as, as this ministry grows, as, as those other ministries we spoke of, as they come into being, as they grow. We don't rejoice in the fact that look at how good we are. Look at what we've done. We rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We rejoice that this is nothing we could do on our own. It goes back to just what I talked about earlier in the sense that I had nothing to do with it. The Lord Almighty, our Creator, our Redeemer, wrote our names in heaven. So why did you come to Christ? Because He wrote your name in heaven. It's as almost as if He knew what was going on. It becomes very freeing for us, and it becomes very freeing when we actually share the good news of that free grace of the gospel with others. It relieves the pressure and motivates us to go. Trusting in him and trusting in the tools in which, however frail we may be, trusting in the tools which he has designed to accomplish his purposes. So, may we share the gospel, being persistent in prayer, trusting in him for protection and provision, and may we celebrate with Jesus that our names are written in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And let us pray. Well, Andrew, I think we're finished. We are done. We are done. Sounds school boring. Good.